This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I am so glad that you're here. Now, this week, I'm going to talk about why we can't cry sometimes and how on the day of therapy, we can actually feel better and then not share what's really going on with us. I know, so annoying. Then I will explain how therapists read the room and whether or not we can read people's minds and how we can all deal with disappointment and frustration maybe a little bit better. Finally, I will talk about ways that we can support a friend who recently attempted to take their own life. Without further ado, let's jump into those questions. Question number one says, hey, Katie, when I started therapy, I cried a lot in session because it was just so overwhelming to talk and think about my emotions and things that I've been through. I'd never talked to a therapist before, so I would just cry out of overwhelm. I've been working with my therapist for almost six months now, and I'm hitting a block where I can't cry in session. We are talking about trauma from high school, and I can run through the whole thing without or the whole story without crying. Even my therapist cried. Why can't I feel this emotion? Is it because it was so long ago? I feel weird not having an emotional response. Thanks in advance. Now, there's a bunch of add-ons. There's a lot of conversation around this question, but I want to jump into this first component first. Now, when we can cry about some things and not about others, as a therapist, I'm always curious, not judgmental, about that not really just process, but about that response, right? Or lack of a response. And the reason I'm curious about it is because if I can cry about one thing, let's say I cry a lot when I talk about um, my relationship with my mom. Let's say I have a strained relationship. I cry a lot. Oh, it's really hard. But then when I talk about like this person, bullying that happened in high school and trauma from high school, nothing. The thing that I always am curious about is what makes these different? Is the strained relationship with our mom, does that situation somehow feel mm, maybe more real to us now? Maybe it feels safer, quote unquote safer, or maybe more okay to cry about because we're processing it now? Maybe, I don't know, right? Does Is that true? And then on the flip side, is the trauma from high school that we experienced did we not feel safe to cry about it at the time or tell anybody about it at the time? Because I find that when we get these roadblocks or these hangups, they come from one of two places. Number one, what I was just talking about is that the experience itself of that time reminds us slash kind of guides us towards not crying because it didn't feel okay then, right? When we're bullied and when we're going through a trauma, it can be too scary, too overwhelming, we can be completely disconnected. Even though you can talk it through, 
we aren't able to connect to it emotionally because it just it's too much or it feels too risky or maybe we cried at the time and we're like shamed again and like traumatized more because of it and so that whole like scenario or experience in our mind does not feel safe to connect to does that make sense almost like our past experience with it is dictating our future because in the past it wasn't okay so why would it be okay now or in the past i used to get harmed again because i talked about it and got emotional about it why would i do that same thing again right so that's one place that this could come from another potential if you're like none of that rings true for me that doesn't even make any sense another potential could be that this particular situation is more emotionally charged now i might i know you might be thinking but katie the other stuff was emotionally charged too yes i'm not saying that one is and one isn't. I'm saying this one might be more like painful for you. And I know you might be thinking also, but if it's more painful, wouldn't I be able to cry more easily? Not always. Sometimes when something is too emotionally painful, we disconnect from it. We can intellectualize the shit out of it. We can talk about it. We can't feel it. I can't tell you what I experience in my body when I talk about it. That could be that disconnect. That could be what's cutting you off from feeling like you can cry and show emotion when you talk about that specific thing. So I don't know. Those are just some of my thoughts, some of the places it could come from. As always, you know you best. So consider some of those questions and see what rings true for you. Now, there's a comment on this as as an add-on, do I have to feel to work through trauma? I did trauma therapy last year and there was a point where I stopped having emotions except for a lot of shame. But the feeling didn't feel like it came from the trauma time, but from the present. Hmm. It was like functioning and like talking about someone else. Interesting disconnection. Also, that was over a year ago and the symptoms didn't get better. Okay, in order to work through our trauma, we are going to have to feel it in some way. And I say in some way because there's no exact science when it comes, we're, we're, it's like psychology as a whole is what what is known as a social science, meaning it's not black and white. We can't test and retest on different people and get the same result. Sometimes we can, but a lot of times we can't. And in this case, when you talk about feeling and trauma, we're going to have to at least experience it somewhat so we can let it go. That could be in our bodies through a body memory where we're feeling that, oh, I feel it in my throat. Oh, it feels so tight. Uh, Maybe we go la la la, make some noise. We move it and we feel better. Maybe that means that when uh, that when we feel the emotion, it means we cry or we laugh or we scream or maybe we fight back. Maybe we move, right? Whatever it is, we're going to have to feel it to work through it because here's the kicker. It's not that we have to experience every single emotion we ever felt at that time. It's the fact that we can't be completely disconnected from it and simultaneously work through it. It'd be like me trying to cut someone's lawn from across the street unless we have some, I guess, weird lawnmower. It's not going to work. We have to be there. We have to get in it a little bit. We have to be able to experience it to even talk about the experience, right? We have to be able to recall. And if our recall is all intellectual and not emotional, and maybe it's all mental and not physical, it's not going to work. We have to treat the whole thing. And so Again, going back to that original question, I think something might have happened here. You said you there, you reached a point where you stopped having emotions. I would tap into that. I'd tell your therapist about that. I would be curious about why. Is it because we feel so overwhelmed by all the situations that we're shutting it down because it's uncomfortable? Is it because it doesn't feel safe? Is it because, like, where do we think this is coming from? 
Are we overwhelmed in other parts of our life? So then therapy becomes like just too much. Are we dissociating? I have a lot of questions. But the fact that that's happened does not mean the thing we can't work through it. But it does mean that trying to process a trauma or work through a trauma isn't going to happen right now because we're not connected. And if the research on dissociation is any proof, we know that when we're not present, we're not like actually here in ourselves experiencing something, we can't reprocess it right? We can't be dissociated and reprocessing a trauma. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. And I believe the same applies here. If we aren't feeling it, we can't experience it. We can't work through it, but we'll get you there. It's normal to feel this kind of disconnect, reconnect, disconnect, reconnect. Being in our bodies and being in an uncomfortable or painful experience isn't something that we're going to want to do continuously. We're going to have to build up to it. It's like a new muscle, right? And it can feel very uncomfortable. So we're going to want to disconnect again. We're going to feel that urge, do those old coping skills to distract and to do things like that as much as possible. That's just the human condition. That's what I would expect from anybody. But let your therapist know this is happening so they can bring you back. So we can try to find ways to get back into ourselves, back into our experience and start to feel again. There was another add-on. It said, "Um, I've, I've never been able to cry in therapy. And sometimes it's really annoying. I fight so much, even though I don't want to. I don't understand why it is as uh, why that is as therapy is basically the place to cry, right? Yes and no. We'll talk about it. I want to, but I just can't get myself to. I also have a hard time crying around other people in my life, not just my therapist. I suspect I trained myself to do that. Here's your kicker to do that as a teenager because I didn't want anyone to know how bad I was feeling. But now I don't seem to be able to unlearn it. Any tips? Okay. Yes, I suspect that that's where it comes from too. Just like I said, it used to be really protective, right? We did it for a reason. Um, It's something that maybe didn't feel safe or okay to do. And we didn't want people to know how we were doing because then they might ask questions and we didn't want to answer those questions, right? There's a bunch of reasons we can stuff it down and put on a happy face, right? Pretend to be okay. That's an incredibly common experience. How do we unlearn it? Opposite action. And what I mean by that is when we want to stuff it down, pretend we're okay, ha ha ha, we laugh it off, even though it's really painful. I want you to at least acknowledge verbally, if you can, would be awesome, to your therapist and say, I feel the urge to kind of laugh this off or stuff it down. This is actually painful, but I can't feel it. Call attention to it, if you can. That would be my goal for you is to be able to call attention to it. But another way in could be to start. So after session, after we've had this experience, maybe you can even recall like right after last session, let's journal a little bit about what thoughts or feelings came up. And if we can't identify them, I want you to get out the feelings wheel, go to the feelingswheel.com. I think it's just feelingswheel.com. Go there. See if any of them sound maybe correct. And I say maybe correct because when we're disconnected, we might be like, I don't know, kind of, maybe. Those are ones. Circle them, highlight them. And then I want you to consider what those might feel like in your body, in your mind, and how you interact with other people. Let's do some what I call emotional research. We have to unlearn this stuff it down, pretend it's okay. And the only way to do that is to get tapped back in. And also as a kicker, just side note, this helps me sometimes when I'm feeling very 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tightened up, clenched, and stuffed, and repressed. When I'm feeling really repressed, what I do is I watch or listen to something that makes me emotional. We all have a song, or a, a band, or a type of music, or a, a show on TV. Like Grey's Anatomy will always do it for me. Or maybe it's a movie. What is it? Let's find something that that causes that emotional ooh, response. Let's tap into that. Let's do that thing. Let's bring it about because sometimes even though it's like an artificial stimulation kind of right we're looking out into for someone else to help us feel something but in that stirring if we combine that with some journaling and the other stuff I was talking about the feelings wheel and all of that then that can maybe help us relearn our emotional experience and acknowledge it now is it going to be easy no but was it easy when you trained yourself as a teenager just to like stuff it no it wasn't easy then either but well, it's all through practice and repetition. So keep doing it. And opposite action also means, because I didn't really explain that very well, that when we want to do one thing, we do another. And it's almost like that adage, you know, like three, two, one, do it, like rip the bandaid off, do it. That's what I'm wanting you to do. So when you want to stuff it down and shut up, I want you instead to push yourself to try to talk about it, either by telling your therapist about it or by journaling about it, using the feelings we'll do in the things we're talking about. Maybe you shake your body out a little bit. Whew, let's get it moving. We can do any kind of thing other than freeze and shut down and stuff it. Just try to do the best that you can. Again, it's not perfect, but we have to try, okay? And there was another add-on. It said, not in therapy, but at night, I had cried in bed because I had to contain all my emotions because I didn't feel like I could express them around my family. But now I can't cry anymore. I feel like I don't have any emotion. Thanks for everything. Now, this one wasn't really so much as a question as a statement, but the same applies that we've potentially felt like it's either not okay to cry or and when it comes into relation to our family you said you know at night you cried in bed because you had to contain all your emotions because you can't express them around your family I've heard from a lot of you and a lot of my patients and even like my friends and stuff that sometimes with family stuff it can be really complicated where we can have an emotional response and maybe it's not improving anything and so it gets harder and harder to keep doing meaning that because we just keep having to go and stuff it it's almost like we don't ever allow ourselves then the release so it's almost like we got out of the habit of releasing we get so used to stuffing it because we're spending time with our family nothing's getting better they're not allowed and they're not changing right we can't change other people but they're not choosing to change so we keep having to do it over and over and over and over and so it becomes second nature so it's hard for us to express anything because we're so used to stuffing it. And so I would encourage you, the challenge I'd have for this person is to, if you have people in your life that you feel somewhat safe or at least neutral enough to share how you feel or to cry a little bit, maybe in therapy even, let's spend more time doing that than we do with our parents. We're going to have to offset this a little. And I'm not saying you can't see your family anymore. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I think the time spent with them needs to be way, 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 way less than the time we spend with other people so that we can get more use to expressing ourselves little by little, kind of 
chiseling out the stone that we've put around ourselves to protect from our family. Let's slowly chip away at that. And we can only do that by spending time with people who allow for that space. Otherwise, we're just going to feel so repressed because we're spending so much time in a place where we have to because it doesn't feel safe to express it. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. Another add-on, I think we have like two more. It says, I almost never cry. Growing up, crying always made everything worse. See, there's our key learning. There's our false belief that crying makes things worse. And I mean everything. Now my therapist is working with me to know it's okay to cry and to let the feelings out. And it terrifies me and even equates to danger. Yes, of course. It might send you into fight flight. It might cause you to dissociate. However, about a week ago, three weeks by the time this podcast is out, yes, I had an emergency regarding my son and was out of town. So I got on the next flight home. I cried off and on for, for, um, from the time I got to my gate at the airport all the way through the drive back home. So while this was happening in the plane, I was trying to be silent and not let anyone know I was crying all the time thinking, oh, sure, how can I stop um, myself from crying? Yet this is not the time or place for it. Since then, it seems that I've gone back to being able to cry. What gives here? The one time I can't stop myself from crying is on an airplane when it's not the time or place for it. How do I convince myself it's okay to cry now? After about 40 plus years of knowing it always made things worse, you're unlearning it. Now, I think what could have happened here, and I'm hypothesizing, right? You guys all know that you know your experience best. I'm just going to give you some potentials of where I think it could have come from. Now, obviously, when you grew, grew up, you thought that crying made everything worse, like everything. And so we wouldn't do it because it made it worse. And so we learned to like swallow it, stuff it, repress it, probably act out in other ways. Um, Could be acting out. I know you're probably thinking, Katie, this is acting out, but being a perfectionist, feeling like you have to get 100% on everything. Or um, it could be that we try to be, you know, the perfect child in the family. It could be the reverse where we're like drinking, skipping class, uh, maybe sleeping around or, um, you know, not doing the things that we're quote unquote supposed to do. It can go either way. Those are both ways of acting out. One just is like, quote unquote, controlled and the other is not. But they're both for the same purpose. So could go that way. But either way, you didn't feel like you could cry at home. It made everything worse. And so you acted out in the way that you possibly, the best possible way you could to cope. And now that you're older and it affected your child, something affected your child, you couldn't help but cry. Part of me wonders if it's because it has to do with them and not you. But either way, it seems like it broke that dam because what happened was, I would assume you didn't say anything bad happened. You cried and nobody shamed you, didn't make anything worse. It was just uncomfortable because we're in public and we're on a plane and stuff like that. But you, it was fine. You cried and it was okay. So kind of what happened is you proved to your brain that it was okay. It wasn't the end of the world to cry on a plane or to cry. Nothing bad happened. I didn't explode. I didn't not make it. It didn't overwhelm me. Any of the what ifs or worries or concerns that we had before, it proved them wrong. And that's probably what happened. That's my guess. And if you keep doing that, it will get easier and easier to be able to express an emotion when we feel it. Okay. Final add-on says, I have a similar experience. I've recently been talking through some traumatic things that happened last school year. And even though it was only a couple of months ago, I can never cry in session when I talk about it. However, anytime out of session, Even if I see something that slightly reminds of anything related to the trauma, I break down. When I don't cry in session, I'm scared my therapist will think that I'm not affected by what happened. 
Why can't I cry in front of my therapist when I am verbally talking about the traumatic memories, but I cry so much when I'm alone? Alone might feel safer. Here's a piece we haven't talked about. It can be scary to cry in front of someone that we see as kind of um, in a power position, for lack of a better term. People like teachers, parents, therapists, doctors. We can see those people as if they're like maybe better than us or just have more power or understanding or control than us. We see them as the person we're going to for advice, for support. And that can sometimes make the dynamic of the relationship feel like they're up here and we're down here, even though the goal of therapy is to help you realize that your level, it's not always experienced that way. And that might, and that's not and no fault of either you or your therapist. I'd assume your therapist is great. It's just that experience may it may be coming from that because it just doesn't feel safe. Like you said, it you cry when you're alone, and and my gut is that it only feels safe to cry when we're alone. And we may have I question whether we've been told that or shown that in our life at some point. Meaning that maybe when we were growing up, if we cried in front of someone else, it made it worse, or we got hurt, or something else, like we got bullied more. You know, I don't know. And so we would cry alone, or maybe we didn't want to stress our parents out. They already have enough stress because we are a parentified child. So we don't want to be a burden on them. And so we only cry alone so we don't upset them or worry them. It could be coming from that too. But I have a feeling that somewhere in there is the reason why you you only cry when you're alone. Okay, moving on to question number two. Question number two says, hello, Katie. So I have an issue with therapy. All week, I'm on an emotional roller coaster. When therapy day comes, I wake up completely put together like nothing is wrong. And I'm completely centered. As soon as I leave my appointment, I get so upset for not sharing how I'm really doing. I've told my therapist about this and he told me to write things down throughout the week. It's like he read my mind as they come up and bring it to me. I wrote them down, but I can't seem to hand it over. I'm processing a trauma and I think I'm stuck due to extreme self-loathing and disgust. He said it's a defense mechanism. It is, which to add some, um, some extent, oh, which to some extent is true. I do, however, actually think what happened to me was disgusting and then it's left me feeling like I am disgusting. I don't engage socially as a result of this and it seems that uh, to be a big deal as my therapist has been having me work on it for several weeks. Why? Can't we process the trauma aside from the isolating or is this processing the trauma without taking it head on? I hope this makes sense. Thanks for all that you do. Yes, it makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, first piece is here. When we go to therapy and all of a sudden we like feel better and we put, we're put together, it's really because we have therapy. It's because we know that help is coming that we feel like, oh, I don't have to manage it all on my own. And we've, there's some sense of relief and that can kind of balance us out and we can feel the best we felt all week on that day. It's annoying, but it's very, very common. And that's why what your therapist recommended is what I would recommend, writing things down. Now, I would ask your therapist if you can email, knowing that they will not open them or reply, but because you have a tough time handing it over. Because then maybe we'll try it and see if we can type stuff at the end of the day or, you know, every couple of days and just send it. Boop. Because once we hit send, sometimes we can three, two, one, send and it's out there. And then we don't have to bring it up in session. We don't have to give it to them and see if that maybe, you know, cuts through that and allows you to share what's important. So there's that piece. Now, to answer your final question about trauma, you are processing the trauma without taking it head on because my uh, my hypothesis, which I assume is the same as your therapist, is that your isolation and feeling disgusting is directly correlated with your trauma, which you really said that it is. And so you're isolating from people because you feel like you're gross. I've heard this from a lot of viewers of ours, a lot of people in our community, that 
They don't want other people to get grossed out by them because of that. And we can feel really bad and we can prefer to isolate because if people really knew me, they wouldn't like me. If people really knew what happened, they'd think I'm just as disgusting as I think I am. Or even worse, they'd think that I'm more disgusting, right? We have all these false beliefs that aren't true. And so we isolate as a result. And your therapist is challenging you on this because it is connected to your trauma. And it's probably, even though it's not an easy way to approach it, it's effective and it's not direct. So sometimes by approaching something like through the side window or something like sneaking in, it's we're, we're not as likely to get defensive. And since he's, you know, the self-loathing and disgust says is a defense mechanism, he's probably just trying to like circumvent that so it doesn't come out as strongly. So hang in there. I know it can feel sometimes like a therapist isn't sticking to the, like, you're not on the path. We're not sticking to our plan. They are. They're just taking a different route because the first route is like full of traffic or there's construction and we can't get through. There's a wall. There's a huge defense mechanism in our way. And so he's just trying to work around it. So hang in there. Um, Sometimes these sideways in can actually lead to a lot of progress really quickly. So just keep with it, okay? Moving on to question three, this question says, hey, Katie, psychology is so fascinating, isn't it? I'm wondering if you could talk about how therapists read the room and read minds. How do you learn to analyze cues and signs that the patient is presenting with? And what if there are inconsistencies? Now, first of all, we do not read minds. I wish we would and could, but we can't. And we won't. I, I don't even think reading minds would help. I mean, I guess it would help in the fact that patients lie all the time. And if you can read their minds, they maybe wouldn't. But reading minds wouldn't help anybody because often there's a huge therapeutic benefit to just saying something out loud. And so if I could read their minds, they wouldn't have to say it out loud. And I think that we would be missing out on some stuff there. Okay, so we don't read minds, but we do read rooms. Now, there are a ton of things, whether it comes from like physical stuff, like body language that we can read. That can be anything like I've told you guys from like my anxious patients who sit on the very edge of the couch, just like barely perched, or they fidget, pop, 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 pop. Maybe their knees are going like, or they have their legs crossed and the other foot is shaking so much they're just shaking as they talk. Could be fidgeting with their hands. Um, it could be my depressed patients, like not wanting to make eye contact, feeling slouched forward. It could be... Um, like I said, eye contact. So like if someone's lying to you or struggling to talk about something, it can go either way. They can look away. They can look down. There's lots of shame. If they're ashamed, you know, there's certain ways that we engage with each other to kind of show how we're feeling. So that's really how I read the room. And when it comes to like families and couples, you can tell a lot about how people interact with each other, body language wise, eye contact wise. So I just notice those things. Um, Also with uh, couples, you notice how much physical touch there is, or usually because they're in therapy, how little there is. And I will call that out. Um, Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways that we read the room. Uh, Unfortunately, this can sometimes follow therapists into their real life. And when it comes to like parties or events, you can usually tell how people are doing if there's something going on that people aren't talking about, um, I try not to do this too much because it leads to me feeling kind of on edge or like I'm walking on eggshells and it kind of feeds into my people-pleasing behavior. And so I try not to take my empathy out into that space because it's not really good. But we get really good at reading people, reading body language, eye contact, and just overall like dynamics between people. We're just really aware, probably more than the normal person. Um, And then if there are inconsistencies in my therapy practice, I call it out. 
it, I think it's important, like, even when it's like a defense mechanism, like if a patient's laughing while they tell me about something really painful or they crack a joke afterwards, I'll say, it sounds like humor's, you know, one of your defense mechanisms. Have, have you been doing that for a long time? You know, you just call it out. Or, hey, you seem really anxious, but you tell me you're doing fine. Do you want me to call your psychiatrist? Maybe we need to increase your medication. Let me talk to them. You know, different things like that. Um, but I call it out because it is part of the whole human experience. And I want to make sure that they're getting treatment for whatever's bugging them. And if I overlook it, it could even feel without maybe realizing this, but if a therapist overlooks something like that, it could feel very minimizing or invalidating, even though they're not doing it on purpose. So I just always try my best to like call it out, you know, say what I'm seeing and get to the root of it. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hello, Katie, how can I deal with disappointment and frustration and be more patient with myself? Every time a therapy session doesn't go as I hoped and we don't get to work on the trauma as we planned, for example, because I dissociate or because we talk about something that came up during the week. After the session, I am always really desperate and hopeless and angry with myself and also guilty because I feel like I should be able to control my dissociation so it doesn't get in the way so much. Look at all this shooting you're doing on yourself. It just feels like wasting time and that scares me. So I'm going to pause there because there's a little, there's more to this, but whenever I see a correlation that doesn't make sense to me. The correlation here being wasting time scares me. Hmm. Those two things shouldn't go together in my mind. Like logically that they don't connect, but they do for this person. And so my question for you is, what is it about wasting time that is scary or frightening? When in the past have you been told you wasted time or maybe were you ever harmed because you were taking up too much time or you wasted their time? Did a parent or teacher or coach or somebody ever yell at you and say that? That's a different, that's a, to me, the, a bizarre connection. And so I want to call it out and I want you to be curious about where it comes from. Or does it scare you because you feel like you need to process your trauma really, really quickly? Or every session has to be focused on the trauma because, question mark, because why? Because that's what's expected from who? because that's what I should do. Who says, right? Let's dig into this. Let's ask some questions. Where is this coming from? Why do we believe that? And then another piece I want to talk about before I move into the rest of their question is this shit talking that's happening. And this assumption that you should be able, you're shooting all over yourself, right? You should be able to control your dissociation so that you should work on this more quickly. You shouldn't take as much time as you're taking. I hear it underlying a lot of this question. And the real answer here is, to notice your self-talk. I know it's a shitty answer. It's true. It's a fact. It's tedious, but it works. Pay attention to the stuff you're saying. Like, um, I like whatever is making you say you feel so guilty, you're hopeless, you're angry with yourself. What's that conversation like? Can we argue back with something just a little less shitty? Remember, bridge statements are not positive statements. They're just less negative. So if the belief is that... Um, I'm such a piece of shit because I can't, I'm not working on my trauma as much as I should. And I wasted that session. I'm taking up too much time. That's a negative thought. And it just spirals out from there. Maybe the bridge statement is, you know, I still think I'm a piece of shit, but maybe I'm trying my best, even though it's shitty. It's not very good. I'm not doing very good, but I am going to keep trying. And I have faith in that, that it will maybe hopefully get a little less shitty. Again, not positive but not as negative. And trust me, when I tell you, you will feel the difference. Now, the rest of the question says, um, 
uh, okay, my therapist always tells me that I shouldn't put so much pressure on myself. I agree. And I'm sure she's right, but I don't know how. Therapy is the only thing that has helped me. And I can see, um, and that I can, I see can help me change my life. Got you. Sorry, I fumbled on that. And I wouldn't have unlimited therapy sessions. Also, I'm often stressed in the beginning of the session that it will be wasted and that I will be feeling like I described before, which causes me to shut down. It feels like a loop and I don't know how to get out of it. I hope it's understandable. Um, I hope it's understandable what I wanted to say. English isn't my first language. Thanks for everything. Your English is impeccable. It always makes me laugh when you guys write that because your English is always great. So now when it comes to this, because you are stressing, essentially you're letting the anxiety or the worry that it'll happen shut you down before session. I want you to do some system regulation type of things, meaning nervous system regulation. So like stomping your feet, shaking your body out, putting cold water on your face, um, even like swallowing, like getting a sucky candy because sucking and swallowing triggers our vagus nerve can calm us down, soothe us a little bit. What else can we do? I feel like those are probably the best. Changing temperature, shaking it out. We want to regulate our nervous system and let that extra energy out so that you don't shut down. Because shutdown comes from that overwhelm or that intense worry. And we have to slowly prove to our brain that that's not going to happen. And that will slowly but surely release us from this cycle that we're caught in. Because it sounds annoying, but it's the truth. It's like an anxiety loop where we feel anxious because um, because of the thing that we're worried might happen. So we worry more about that thing that we we're worried is going to happen. And we worry so much, we overwhelm our system, and then we dissociate, and then that happens. That dissociation we didn't want to happen. And then we worry again, and it just gets caught be- over and over, and we just keep like self-fulfilling prophecy. And so the only way to get out of that loop is to use some coping skills to regulate and to slowly not have that dissociation response that we're so worried about. Because then we're proving to our brain, hey, I can go to therapy, I can talk about some things and I don't shut down. Or I can make it into therapy and not shut down. But I do want to challenge you on that, you know, worrying about wasting your session and that being something that you're scared about. That's that that's worth uh, being curious about. Okay. Final question today, and that is question number five. It says, hello, Katie. My best friend is in the hospital after a suicide attempt a few a few days ago, and I don't know how to be around her now. My feelings jump around and change all the time. I am shocked. I'm sad that she was so desperate. I'm scared to say something wrong that will push her over the edge and have her try again. I'm relieved that she's alive. I'm also scared when she doesn't answer my calls, texts, or her doorbell after I saw the ambulance in front of her house. I'm angry with her, and I feel guilty for being angry. She planned it, and I felt that something was weird, and now I know she was saying goodbye. But I didn't ask her because I'm struggling a lot with my own mental health and suicidal thoughts myself and didn't have the energy at the moment. And now I feel so guilty and selfish because of that. We're going to dig into this. I know it's not my fault. Still, I can't stop thinking if it wouldn't have happened if I had asked her. And I'm so angry because I walked into the apartment to pack a suitcase for her and had to see the remains of what she had done, and I can't forget that picture now. And I feel guilty because this should not be about me. I'm so angry that she didn't give me a warning when she asked me to go there and it was so triggering. At the same time, I just know that I never ever want to put anyone through what I went through these last few days. I don't know how to talk to her and how to be honest or how, and how honest I should be about my feelings. I don't want her to feel guilty because of how I feel. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks for all that you do. Okay, a couple of things. You cannot light yourself on fire to keep someone else warm. It's one of my favorite quotes. It's very, very true. And the fact that you're you're angry with her and you don't have the energy to support her and you feel guilty and selfish, that's all you lighting yourself on fire to keep her warm and you're not responsible for her. 
I know that sucks. I know you wish you could make it better. I know you wish that you could have said something, checked in on her, done something to change it, but we have to remember this one big important piece. We cannot make other people do anything. You can't make them want to change. You can't make them not try to take their own life. We can't make someone feel better. We can't make someone treat us with more respect. We can't do any of that. All we can do is take care of ourselves and control our own response to life, okay? So what do we do with all of these feelings? We're going to have to talk about it in therapy. I would not tell her about it yet because it's too fresh. She's still in crisis. Um, As a therapist, I forget what statistics there are statistics that support this, but I can't remember the exact number. But anyway, there's a certain amount of days. I want to say it's like a month after someone attempts where they're still very high risk. And as a therapist, we do check-ins all the time. Again, it's a certain amount of days or weeks or something. And I, I just can't remember it off the top of my head. But do not tell her about that now. It's not going to help anything. And you may not even really know how you feel yet because it just happened. So start journaling about it. Start talking to your therapist about it. But don't talk to her yet. You could talk to other people who are also close to her. Don't do it in a way that's like shit talking or gossiping, but more as like, a am having a hard time with this. Make it about you. It's okay to vent to those people because they might be going through the same thing. And then you can kind of show each other some understanding and compassion as you navigate this, right? It's a, it's a tricky thing, suicide. It's, it's, it's complicated. It's painful. It's hopeless on both sides. I actually have a video if you wanted to watch it, um, about, I forget what the title is, but something to the effect of like dealing with the suicide of a loved one. You can just look up suicide of loved one, Katie Morton, it should come up. Um, It's years and years old, but I still think it's very relevant, especially to your situation. And yes, I know, you know, she, she's here and she wasn't successful in her attempt, but this still talks about like all of the guilt and the issues that can come up for it. And maybe that would, there'd be something in there that's helpful. So process it through Uh, through journaling, through talking to a therapist, through talking to other people that you know that shared this experience. Also remember, you cannot light yourself on fire to keep someone else warm. You're struggling with your own mental health and suicidal thoughts. You have to take care of you first and then you can take care of and help someone else, but they should not take priority. You don't have to make things worse for you in order to help them. None of that has to happen. You need to put yourself first it's okay to feel angry. I would feel angry too. And then I'd I'd feel guilty too. It's complicated, right? It's messy. We love them. They were going to go away. How dare you? But then like, oh, I know I felt that way too. Fact. It's complicated. Allow yourself to process it. This was a trauma for you, by the way. Um, This was also potentially, like you said, super triggering. So it could have been really triggering for you too. Um, And it's a lot to process. So give yourself the time. There might even be some grief in there. So allow yourself to move through it slowly. But again, I would not bring it up with them. They're still in crisis. It's not going to help. They're not in a good place to hear about it. And you're frankly not in a good place to talk about it. So let's talk about it with a professional or with other people who've gone through it. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. I hope you found my answers helpful. These are wonderful, wonderful questions. Feel free to ask any follow-ups next week. If you're new here and you're like, where do I ask the questions? You can go over to the uh, the YouTube page called Opinions That Don't Matter. It's the podcast that I have with my husband, Sean. We're actually on hiatus right now. But in the community tab over there, I ask the questions on Sundays at 2 p.m. Central is when they're posted, usually, I think. Um, and you can put them in there. 
and I use I pick the first few that have the most thumbs ups and then I usually end with like one random question at least so that everybody has a chance to get their questions answered. So head over there on Sunday. I'll ask for your questions for the next podcast. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.